Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners around the world to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my friend and co-host Liz Felstern in Jerusalem. We are in day 142 of the war with Hamas and the individuals being held captive um, in Gaza or other places. And currently there are negotiations for their release and for a ceasefire. Still no details have been made to that effect. Um, not sure we should uh, talk about it since we don't have any hard facts, but um, I just wanted to share that with you. Any thoughts on what you're hearing in Jerusalem about the negotiations? I am so high. First of all, um, as you said, yeah, I, I I'm also not aware of any hard or confirmed facts. News reports here keep mentioning that negotiations are happening and that there's growing optimism. I don't know exactly who it is that they have noticed has this growing optimism, um, but I certainly like to be hopeful and uh, and think that there are in fact these negotiations happening and that they could be moving in a positive direction. We saw it happen before um, and it did lead to hostages being released. So if that can happen again, that would be wonderful. And that's definitely what we'd all like to see happen. So last week, uh, so we'll just pay attention to that. But last week when we spoke, you were giving an overview of the municipal elections. How, how how has that been turning out? Have they happened yet? Uh, what's going on with it? So the elections will happen on Tuesday, February 27th. So when people are listening to this, it probably will have already happened. Any predictions? Um, a few things to, to add about the municipal elections. So uh, first of all, I think we can include with the notes of this episode a good backgrounder that was done by the Jerusalem Post that gives people information about how the different sizes and types of local government works in Israel. But um, I'll, I will say a little bit of the highlights, which is that in Israel, we have basically three different types of what are all called local authorities. A city has a municipality. Right. So where you have a large population center, you have a municipality. Where you have a, a town, basically, not something that rises to the level of city, that um, that town has what's called a local council. And in even smaller communities or where you have a few kibbutzim or moshavim and or these small communities come together, they have what's called a regional council. So we have these three different sizes, basically, um, of population groups that are get represented each by their own local government. And altogether, we have 259 of these entities across Israel, and they will all have elections um, this week. Now, when I say all, that's not entirely true. Why? We have... Um, we have 14 communities that are currently in evacuation and therefore will not be having their local elections. Um, and 
another just phenomenon that we have with this these particular elections, which is why they were postponed twice, right? They were originally supposed to happen on October 31st of 2023, um, is the fact that there are so many people who are not at home, both because of evacuation, but also because they're serving in the military in reserve duty. And I just want everybody to know that, in fact, there are uh, plans in place to make sure that all of the people who are serving in the military are able to vote. There are um, several hundred polling places that are set up specifically for soldiers and reservists. And those actually opened up close to a week ago. So in order to make sure that all of those people could vote, they they were allowed to start the voting process a week in advance. The ballot boxes were taken into Gaza so that people could vote from within Gaza and then carried back out. Um, so all of that is happening. In terms of Jerusalem specifically, we usually like to say a little something about Jerusalem. So Jerusalem obviously is a city, so it has a municipality. And in places where there is a municipality, well, in all of these 259-ish locations, people will vote uh, similar to what we have in national elections. People will vote for two things, really. They will vote once for the person, for the mayor, in the case of a city, that they want to elect. And then they will vote in a separate envelope for the for the council. And the size of the councils varies depending on the size of the community. Could be anywhere from five people in a very small community up to 31. And Jerusalem, of course, as a big city, has that maximum number of 31. So it's 30 council members plus the mayor, which makes the 31 people who sit on the council. So we'll vote for all of that on Tuesday. How do the ballots work? You talked through the national elections. They vote for the party and they have a little card that they put in. How do they do it with the municipal elections? So when you go for the municipal election, you get two envelopes and you have to take two little cards. Um, uh, uh, I may be mixing up my colors, but I believe it's a white slip of paper and a white envelope that you use to vote for the mayor and then a yellow envelope and yellow slip of paper that you use to vote for the party that you want to rep to be represented in the council. So for the mayor, in order for someone to be elected, uh, they have to receive 40% of the votes cast. If no one candidate gets that, then there will be a runoff election of the two highest voted candidates in whatever city it is that we're talking about. Um, and the runoff election takes place usually 10 days after the first election. In this case, it's actually been bumped up. And so any runoff elections that need to happen will happen eight days after the election. And that is to make sure that it happens before the beginning of Ramadan. Um, so that's how people vote for the mayor, and then they vote for the party, and the sim that's what's similar to the sort of national Knesset structure, that depending on what portion of the votes each party that's running gets, that's how many seats they get on the council. So the 30 seats that exist in Jerusalem will be filled by 
the proportionate numbers of the various parties that are voted in. So any personalities you're following in Jerusalem that you'd like to see as mayor or are you not endorsing any candidates? I am not endorsing any candidates for mayor. Um, I will just say a few things in terms of who's running. You know, we have, and I think we mentioned this once before, almost half of the parties in Jerusalem are ultra-Orthodox parties, right? The ultra-Orthodox community is a very large portion of Jerusalem, and it is not a monolithic society. It's got a lot of different factions and um, and people who would like to have a hand in the leadership. So there are quite a lot of ultra-Orthodox parties. We do also have other parties, secular parties, liberal parties, uh, some of the parties do align themselves with the same names of parties that you'll hear in national elections. So there is a Likud, there is a Labor, there is a Meretz, all of those parties exist. And then some are parties that only exist on the local level. Um, we do have running, although I do not believe that anybody expects her to pass the threshold to of votes in order to be part of the council. But we do have running an Arab woman for the first time in the history of Jerusalem's municipal elections, which is interesting. Um, and and we'll see. What While I am not endorsing anyone, I'll just mention that the mayoral candidates do certainly endorse certain of the um, parties that are running for the council and vice versa, right? So the you'll see posters saying, this is what you want your slips of paper to look like. You should vote for this mayoral candidate and this committee. They're sort of paired up. Um, so we'll see how it goes. That was a great explanation. Thanks, Alan. Um, no, not to change topics, but I think that it's important for us to continue talking about the rise of anti-Semitism that we're seeing in America and around the world. And I shared with you last week an article by Dara Horan, which I did post on our blog site. Um, uh -huh. I also um, have been following the interviews that Anat Wolf has been doing. And then this week, um, Daniel Gordas interviewed Michal Kotler Wunsch. And I have found that the these individuals, these three women so far in the past couple of weeks, have been trying to understand and communicate where they see the rise and history of anti-Semitism has come from and how it's impacting communities around the world to combat some of the anti-Semitism. Um, I find it struggling and baffling that in 2024, Jews around the world have to defend themselves against anti-Semitism, both through intimidation and um, uh, I wouldn't say so much violence, but there has been some violence, but clearly verbal harassment. And the rise of uh, anti-Israel rallies and demonstrations within city councils. So there's been this growth of anti-Semitism. I wonder if you have been following any of this from Israel and what you're seeing from your seat on world uh, anti-Semitism. Oh, but that's a huge question to put in front of you. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to start. Look, I I 100% agree with you that it is baffling, 
right? And that's why we're seeing these multiple, very bright, very astute people tackling this question and trying to think about it and talk about it and write about it. And the reason why I think in part that it is so baffling is because in many ways, it it flies in the face of the narrative of Jews in America for the past 75 years. That has, until now, had a pretty clear and straight trajectory of greater and greater acceptance and normalization and sort of becoming a culture like every other culture. And this overwhelming surge of anti-Semitism, and maybe it feels like a surge, but really it was growing all along and we should have seen it, but we missed it. I don't know. I think that's what some of these writers are trying to understand and, and flesh out. Um, but that that what feels like a sea change is very much a, a shift in what how we thought the historical trajectory was going. And it makes us question, right? Did we get it wrong all along? Did we only think that we were accepted and we weren't really? Was that acceptance somehow conditional and we didn't understand what the conditions were? And was the condition not not supporting Israel or not having Israel or not being a self-determined nation? You know, what was it? How did we miss the messaging here um, in such a way that we've gotten to the situation, which, as you said, now Jews feel the need to defend themselves in all of these ways that shouldn't be necessary, things that should be a given, like that Israel has a right to exist and Israel has a right to defend itself, et cetera, et cetera. The one other thing that I'll say in terms of your big question of what does it look like from here? Um, and it's always hard to understand what things look and feel like when you're not on the ground, right? I'm sure the war in Israel is hard for people outside of Israel to understand what is it like on a day-to-day basis and in some ways see, looks scarier from abroad than it is really here on the ground. And that is also how I feel about anti-Semitism. I would say that from here, it looks really scary. And I don't know if that's accurate or if it's that, you know, phenomenon that happens when you're looking at a place from the outside in, but it looks really scary. I mean, I, I, I didn't see the background of it, but I saw briefly something about how um, in in London on Big Ben was projected a message of from the river to the sea. And to see that kind of a statement in a public place, I assume privately funded, again, I don't know the background, but it's still for that kind of statement to be become publicly okay is really frightening. So I'll jump in because I think that, you know, you brought up from the river to the sea. That's been the big chant that has been taking place in rallies around America. And then there are three words that um, Michal Cutler-Wunsch brought up in her interview with Daniel Gordas. And that was, you know, race Zionism is racism that came out of 1975 out of the U.N., and then there was the conference in Durban, uh, South Africa, 
which came up with apartheid, and then uh, recently with the International Court of Justice, out of again by South Africa, genocide. So you have three words that have been repeated over and over and over again about describing Israel that goes back, you know, at least until the uh, the seventies. Uh, the racism, apartheid, and genocide, and those continue to be the key words that anti-Israel uh, people, and, and now I would say anti-Semitic you know, Semitic people are using against Israel and Jewish people that, you know, Jews are all of these things as well. Um, and the genocide... And they're hard, they're hard labels to disprove, right? Yes. How do you prove that you're not racist? You can hold up examples of people from diverse races and backgrounds and ethnicities that have all achieved success or have been elected to political office or serve on the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. But those are examples, and it still doesn't necessarily disprove the accusation, right? Once that label is out there, it's very hard to disprove. And I'd say that's the same for apartheid. And it's exactly what we're seeing now with the accusation of genocide and in the International Court of Justice. How does one prove, you know, you can do it, I guess, in a very legal sense. But again, once that label's out there and people have heard it, it will always be in people's minds that maybe there is some grain of truth there. However outrageous the original accusation was. Right. And I would say that the media continues to pick up on those labels. Uh, and we saw that immediately when... Uh, the when Israel had to go into Gaza and going back and forth with the first incident where the hospital in Gaza was blown up and immediately people in the media blamed Israel for it and it took several days for it to really be determined that it wasn't Israel that was at fault but it was uh, Hamas that was at fault. But yet that, you know, mantra comes up again right away that, um, you know, Israel is a, is, is, um, it's just so hard for me to even say these words. Yeah. So again, I think that we have to look at how in America, in, in terms of anti-Semitism, the diaspora communities really need to look at how language is being used against um, Israel and against the Jewish people, and people aren't really looking at the at the history for it properly or understanding where some of these slogans come from. Mm -hmm. Which is doubly frustrating because I feel like Israel and Jews in general are so careful about language, right? We really care about using the right words to describe the right problem or situation or issue and to have labels, you know, attached to us in a way that's completely without justification is frustrating. <laughs> I, I, I don't, and I don't see it going away in the short term as Israel continues to defend itself against Hamas, Hezbollah in the north, the Houthis in the south, uh, and the disruption that's going on in the West Bank. Every little example of Israel defending itself is played out in world media 
in a negative way towards Israel. Um, you know, you you there's this call for ceasefire, but it that's what's called first, not release the hostages. I mean, the hostages, the individuals that are being held captive in Gaza are uh, are there because of what Hamas did to Israel, not because of what Israel did to Hamas. So the call for ceasefire is is challenging for those of us who really want to see the hostages released, um, but others are seeing what Israel is, how Israel is responding to its the threats around it. Well, let us hope that uh, more people realize that a ceasefire is a good sentiment, but it's not the sentiment perhaps that should be the first condition, as you said, right? There, there are innocent people that are still being held in captivity, and that is a wrong that needs to be righted immediately. And then there'll be time to talk about a ceasefire, right? And all of the other conversations that absolutely have to happen afterwards and how do we move forward and what does the future look like for this region? Um, but but for everybody to agree that the hostages should be released seems like it should be a pretty no-brainer of a first first demand. Yeah, and, and it isn't. It's um, secondary, unfortunately. If uh, that. Pardon me? If that, right? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we're at the end of our scheduled time. Uh, I asked you earlier about volunteering in Israel and what resources are available to volunteering. Uh, would you want to share the website that you shared with me earlier? And I'll include it in our notes as well. Well, this is a website that will only be helpful to those of our listeners that have at least enough Hebrew to use a Hebrew website because the organization has a website both in Hebrew and in English. You can see what they're doing in English, but in order to look up specific volunteer opportunities with different populations in different parts of the country, that searchable feature is uh, currently only offered in, in Hebrew. So sorry to those for whom it does not apply. But that website is uh, Ruach Tova, Ruach Tova in an English American accent, dot um, org dot il. And uh, as you said, we can put it in the notes for people to be able to to look at that and see all the different volunteer opportunities that are still happening in this country on a daily basis, where civil society has stepped up in a really, really impressive way over the past five months. Thank you for that. And I'll just share with people that there are good translation resources on websites. So if you find something that you're not quite sure if your Hebrew is good enough, you can find a translation source um, on on websites. Liz, thank you very much for your time today. I'm sorry that it was a heavy conversation. Our next one, you will tell us the results of the municipal elections to the best of your ability. I am. I I will do my best. They it they normally do take some time to get to the actual results for all of these many communities, but by then hopefully we'll have a pretty good sense of who has won these elections. Yes. Okay. Well, we will we will follow your your lead on that. Uh, thank you all for listening. This has been Israel Rebound, a podcast really connecting people and issues from around the world to Israel. Thank you again, Liz, and thank you all for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Alan.